Uh, my name's Ken Torino. I'm manager of community engagement and exhibitions at Historic New England. Uh, to save a little time, we actually put bios on sheets uh, that are around on the seats. If you really want one, I'm sure you could find one and you won't necessarily want to keep them. But our contact information is on them. I just do want to make a point. Let me first, before we start, introduce, uh, I'm going to let our two other speakers introduce themselves. I'm Gwendolyn Rayleigh, museum, my title, oh, I'm sorry. My name is Gwendolyn Rayleigh, director of Indianapolis Volunteers and Heritage Experiences for Indiana Landmarks. And I'm Jay Voet, and I'm with the South Dakota State Historical Society. And I want, I want you to note, if you do have one of those bios, you will see we had to give Jay a full page for himself. So um, it's well-deserved, Jay. So uh, thank you again all for coming. And uh, we do have a big crowd. I'm glad to see that. How many curators do we have in the audience? OK, don't throw anything. Um, how many directors do we have? OK, educators. Okay, collections managers, registrars, okay. If anyone I missed, I'm sorry about that. We're all museum professionals here. Okay, uh, today what we wanna do is uh, we really want to talk with you about looking beyond some of the traditional policies concerning the use of artifacts in historic sites and museums. And what we're gonna be doing is arguing a little bit more for flexibility not for tossing out proper collections care. Um, we want to give you some examples of how institutions are using artifacts to enhance the visitor experience and some creative ways museums are sharing and using collections. Okay? We also want to briefly discuss, or really, not, we're not going to have time to discuss, but introduce you to some new models for collections to keep a discussion going that's begun. So we hope to give you a little bit of an understanding of some of the ethical and personal considerations that go into deaccessions, uh, deaccessioning and using collections. And we're gonna do this by presenting three case studies. Now we're not gonna just stand here and tell you our case studies. We are, these are real life case studies that we're gonna give you. Some of them are actually, one of them is still in process. The others, uh, the solutions have happened. But we're going to ask you to come up with the solutions to three case studies. So we will be breaking in groups. I know it's a little tight, but we'll work with that. So let me uh, go on uh, with just a brief introduction or sort of overview to introduce the, the topic. Yeah, yeah, sure. So in light of the articles, uh, if you look up here, you'll see, and you'll probably recognize a lot of this, the um, articles, uh, conference session workshops, and online discussions. And this is going to look at how some institutions have challenged the Rembrandt rule. You all familiar with the Rembrandt rule? Anyone not? Raise your hand. I'll just, okay, a couple people. Great. Um, I urge you to re read Jim Vaughn's discussion, uh, his article on that, that was in um, Museum, in Museum, Museum News. And in that, uh, Jim proposed that not every artifact should be treated as if it was a Rembrandt. Um, and we'll get into more of that discussion, but that's the basics of, of Jim's, uh, Jim's article. So we're not going to offer exact solutions. We want to continue the discussion that Jim Vaughn really activated with his article, Rethinking the Rembrandt Rule. And do, do seek that out if you're not familiar with it. So if you're in a purpose-built museum 
or if you're in a repurposed building that's been turned into a museum, like the fantastic Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, um, or if you're in a historic house. There are a lot of things that are the same, and that is uh, lack of space, and I think you'll recognize this, and not often, not always, adequate storage or the best kind of storage. Now, as Rainey Tisdale, who's here, and Trevor uh, Jones wrote, many of us are, quote, slowly being buried alive under an avalanche of objects that are only sort of serving your, our missions. Okay. And oftentimes, this can appear as a jumble in some of our historic sites and really hard for people to make sense. And here are just a couple of other examples I've uh, found at some of our other ASLH conferences and in my travels around. And often, we're not very good at interpreting them either, as you can see here. Okay. And I thought this might be a good starting point to just go back uh, to the four-year-old, you know, connecting to collections. And I can let you read what's up there. But I thought it would be a good time to review that our collections are imperiled by improper care and are in need. You know, so do we need all of these collections? <laughs> and here are some of the findings that um, came out of the report in 2010. And again, you can read, and I'm showing you slides of institutions that I've been to or worked with in various forms. Okay. I am pleased to say that, and some of you may all already be aware of this, that Heritage Preservation has announced that as a follow-up to the Heritage Health Index that they are doing another report, and they started that in 2014, and that report should be issued in 2015. And that's going to be, again, look, the Heritage Health Index 2014-2015, which will also look at our our collections and their conditions. So, we have to balance the collections that we have in our institutions, whether it's a museum or a historic house, with making them more accessible, our sites, and connecting to the public. And how, how do we balance that? How do we balance that? We have to serve our communities. And how can we do that when many of our sites are bursting at the seams with material like this? And not to pick on, not to pick on spinning wheels, but let's pick on spinning wheels for just a minute. And a lot of people use this as an example. I know it's a cheap shot. But really, you know, just in a, looking at historic sites, I mean, you see spinning wheels everywhere. The institution I worked with had a dozen. We didn't need a dozen. We deaccessioned all, I think, but one. So... What is my point here? That you can read it right here. And this is actually something that came out years ago at Kikit. And I still firmly believe it at the Kikit conference, if you're not familiar with it. And what I'm saying here, and what we said there, is that we need to look at current standards and we need to look at revising them. We need to do a lot more deaccessioning. We need to convince registrars, collections managers, curators that who have been trained to protect artifacts that that's not enough. Deaccessioning policies need to be revised across the board so that the funds can be used more broadly for the benefit of museums. 
and that's actually now taking place. And I think Tom Mays is here, or was, okay. So I urge you tomorrow to go to Tom's session, Radical Common Sense, um, and it's going to be discussing a major institution, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, their revised collections management policy, which is, and Tom, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's to treat its historic buildings, and landscapes and objects all the same, which means they can use deaccessioned funds, proceeds, to provide direct care across the board for landscape, for buildings, and so on. So I think this is really important discussion, and if you can make it to that, please do. <laughs> and he didn't pay me for that. So here, did, did my whip go off? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, a minute and a half. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm finishing up. So we have, as you can see, I'll let you read this. You know, artifacts are not just pre for preserving. They do tell incredible stories. I want to illustrate some of uh, some case studies here really quickly. Historic uh, Long Branch in rural Virginia after a careful study, have decided that the artifacts they had were not telling the stories that they wanted and were not connecting to the people that they, not connecting to the community. So what did they do? They did away with the classic velvet rope tour. They sent over 250 lots to auction. And the director said, raising funds from selling furnishings that do not completely represent Long Branch's 200-year history will breathe new life into the house. And just a couple of other examples here, and I think this is an important one. And this illustrates about duplicating efforts. Uh, Lisa Anderson has led this drive, and it's really, it's been written up in history news. Uh, the Mesa Historical Society, the Chandler Museum, and others have collaborated on a new form of collaboration. They call it a history system model, allowing each individual organization to, specify, to specialize in one type of history object. Now, these museums are all in the greater Phoenix area, and they share a common history. So they developed this coalition. For example, Mesa deaccessioned all of their agricultural equipment to Chandler because Chandler can better tell the farming story. And then when this newspaper, 100-year-old newspaper, went out of business, not one of the contributing coalition organizations could take charge of these one million artifacts. So they collaborated or sharing staff to process, digitize, store, and provide access to these million uh, photographs, documents, and so on. And we need, do need to break down barriers, barriers at our historic house. I'm looking forward to seeing Ramsey House tomorrow, which did do this and have totally transformed their site with this. And I've talked a lot about the staff and have done other panels with them. And they're actually holding programs in the site, in the historic rooms. The artifacts that you see are being used are actually private collectors that come in and do these history happy hours, which have sold out all but the first one. And I really want to, Jay, if you could pass that out. Um, I don't have time to go in this, but I want to give you the idea of some of the other work that's being done in the field. Trevor Jones at uh, the Kentucky Historical Society, and Jay's passing this around to each of you so you can look at it in depth, has come up with a proposal that is really asking us to look carefully at our objects to tear them in terms of their, uh, of their value to the mission of the museum. And you can look at that more closely later. Um, and please talk to Trevor. He's here. 
and he can tell you more about this. And um, he's been continuing to work on this, and um, I think it's a really interesting way of ranking artifacts and bringing some to the forefront of what needs to be deaccessioned and got rid of and which ones are of the most value. Um, I think we can look at some other kinds of museums. They have a Museum of Fine Arts in Boston has a program where the, they buy craftsman furniture for the collection, but they allow visitors to sit on it. And Chatsworth and the British National Trust, this is not British National Trust, but they allow visitors to actually use the musical instruments, specifically the pianos. And boy, that adds a dimension. At one of our sites, um, we've recreated uh, vignettes in the rooms, which the visitors, you can see the period rug, Cindy will recognize this, cannot go on. The opposite side, we've mirrored it completely, and the visitor can touch and experience the artifacts any way they want. And um, also here, Lincoln Cottage, I just put this in because they bought period furniture and allow visitors to sit on it. Gives them a different kind of experience. People call this the most ex exciting historic house in the world. Dennis Seaver's house, fires going, rotting fruit in the kitchen. There's a cat that lives in the house, and the bed is not made, which I love. Uh, historic New England, we do allow some limited access. We're not letting everyone go through and paw through the collections, but this is a program I run where people actually get to study and use some of the artifacts. This isn't new, but we do do it with some of our collections. And I'm working uh, with my Tufts students on the iconic Kennedy compound, and like with Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, uh, right now is a study house. This is not open to the public. We're bringing groups in and allowing them to actually sit on the Kennedy's furniture while we help them decide what's going to happen to this house in the future. Most likely will not be a museum. And now I'm going to stop because I've run over. I'm going to turn this over to Gwendolyn. Okay. Okay. And Jay's going to present the first case study for you. Under normal circumstances, I'm not involved in collection issues. I may be briefed on collection matters, but I rely on the archivists and the curators to make prudent decisions. However, once in a while, a problematic situation lands on my desk. <laughs> South Dakota became a state in 1889, but the decision for where the state capital was going to be located um, took three elections, and Pierre won each of those elections. Following the 1904 election, a substantial capital building was completed in 1910. Bell and Detweiler of Minneapolis designed the state capital as well as some of the furniture in it. One of those pieces of furniture is a circular or round bench. It is the only piece of original capital furniture in the South Dakota State Historical Society collection. Many pieces of the original furniture remain in use in the Capitol today. The original floor plans of the Capitol show the, the placement of all the new furniture, except the round bench. This is the um, Capitol main floor. Note there is nothing located in the rotunda. In a 1910 photograph, the year the Capitol opened, the round bench is pictured in the State Historical Society office. What I love about this picture is the plant on the bench and the shaggy animal on the wall. Um, just put a note that it wasn't an artifact then. 
However, within recent memory, um, the round bench has been located in the Capitol Rotunda. That's my youthful memory. That's where it was located. Here's where it gets tricky. My direct boss is the Secretary of Tourism, and his direct boss is the governor. And in addition, in 2002, South Dakota elected its first governor from the capital city of Pierre. A citizen activist grew up with the governor and worked for his real estate and insurance firm. And that person asked the governor that the round bench be, quote, returned to the rotunda. At the request of the governor, the society loaned the round bench to the state capitol for five months with care instructions and an object label. The next year, a similar loan was made. However, the bench did not remain in the rotunda, but, was, but ended up in the lower rotunda because it was needed to be moved constantly for public events. It was returned to the society at the conclusion um, to be included in the exhibition on the centennial of the state capitol in which the public was allowed to sit on the bench in the controlled environs of the museum. After the exhibition, the bench was returned to collection storage. Two years later, the citizen activists became aware that the round bench was no longer in the capitol and the matter was turned over to the Capitol Complex Restoration and Beautification Commission. The commission members are gubernatorially appointed and highly connected individuals. The commission held two meetings on the matter and viewed the condition of the bench. In this venue, the Bureau of Administration, which manages the Capitol, was less than enthusiastic about the bench's return. However, one of the commission members asked the commission should we consider another trial period for the round bench to see what kind of vandalism or wear and tear might occur? <laughs> um, I have not included um, all the, the photographs in, of the exhibits in the, the um, case study that you'll be looking at shortly, but a lot of them were photographs in this thing, in this presentation. So what do you consider the appropriate stewardship for the bench? Should the bench be used in the capital until it needs restoration? Or does the bench hold sufficient historical significance that it should remain an artifact only and be only used in professional exhibitions? What other options might be considered? What is your conclusion? Thank you. So we're actually, we're actually going to give you some time to discuss that, but we're going to present all three first. Okay, my name is Gwendolyn Rayleigh. I work for Indiana Landmarks. And as part of my job, I manage the Morris Butler House, which was built in 1865. It opened as a museum in the first headquarters for Indiana Landmarks in 1969. It functioned as a traditional historic house museum of Victorian decorative arts for 43 years. It's one part of a larger organization that operated as a standalone institution for many years and is now being reintegrated into the parent organization and um, which embarked in a new direction in 2010 with a new headquarters right here, uh, which is right next door, with a new name, a new logo, a clarified mission which you can read, and a new strategic plan that actually didn't mention the house at all. Um, realizing that the house needed to fit in a little bit better, I began to do some research um, and I've worked for Landmarks for six and a half years, um, I discovered that there had been 30 years of study, beginning in 1982, 
1992-96, the studies I was involved with in 2010, 2010 again, and 2012, which Jim Vaughn and Max Van Belgoe came out to our site and did a, a survey and a charrette and gave us um, some feedback. And all of that indicated that we needed to change. All of these studies had similar conclusions. So what do you need to do? Change, which can be very scary. It can be very scary. Um, to be sustainable, the fundamental function of the house had to change. So in 2012, Indiana Landmarks decided to close the house as a museum and in order to repurpose it. Uh, Ten days ago, our president articulated a clear vision um, for the house to repurpose it as a flexible historic venue for events and programs that allows interaction between visitors and the features of the house. Historical ambiance will be maintained through period-appropriate furnishings and finishes, creating a distinctive venue for events in a complement to the Indiana Landmarks Center. So how do you go from this to a flexible event venue when you have all this stuff that you don't need anymore? And I will say that about 97% of what is in the house is not original to the families or the house itself. Um, so we're at a point of deaccessioning and disposing of artifacts. Um, I will say that what to keep and how much has been a little unclear at this point. Um, we have 5,000 plus objects, 70% of which we don't have clear title to, meaning we can't prove we legally own it. Um, 43 years of willy-nilly interpretation, 43 years of inconsistent records, and 43 years of what I call professional hoarding, <laughs> done by people like us, professional museum professionals. So we're dealing with all of that and deal with it we are with a deaccessioning task force uh, that was given six months to do all of this, uh, decide what to keep, use, and dispose of, reconcile ownership issues, uh, determine how to dispose of artifacts, uh, advocate for transparency, and determine what the proceeds, how we would use the proceeds from any auction or sale of artifacts. Um, that six-month appointment started in March. It's up. It's over. Um, we're still working, I'm still working with the folks. The, the task force was composed of people, other museum professionals um, in Indianapolis, and what we discovered in the process of looking at our records, trying to organize the donor and artifact records, they're very incomplete. This is an intern taking a few of the files and laying them out. It's like a big puzzle where you don't have the box with the pictures, trying to figure out what is the big picture. Um, she was consolidating all of the records. Each of these pieces of paper came from a different source, and we're trying to put everything together. Um, we've been finding some funny things. Somebody waited 24 years for us to find this. <laughs> this is the, that was the best thing I found. There's been more. So that made us laugh. This made us almost cry. What is going on here? I do not know. Um, we also have this, uh, an artifact that was donated and then taken later by the same donor. What? Um, we're locating missing artifacts in some various people's offices and trying to identify artifacts with mm, classy smears of whiteout that were put on 30 years ago. So um, we have a lot of ethical issues that we are dealing with, which I will talk about after we all separate and do our um, group work. So my major question for all of you, 
what do we do? Uh, my case study is the one that's in process, and we're actually planning to, uh, I see folks from the National Trust, um, last year was like a, an aha moment, accession the building, accession the building. Um, so we're treating the building as the primary artifact, and any proceeds that we get from any sale will go back into the direct care of the building. So that is, thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to stop there, turn it back, uh, oh, and turn it over to Ken. thinking. It's still thinking. I'm not sure why it's doing this. So maybe you should go ahead and start talking. Uh, yeah, I'll start talking. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, yeah, talk over here while you play. Um, I just am hoping to show you some pictures of some of the artifacts, and that's really what I want to do with this, if we can get it going. But let me just tell you a little bit about the background. I'm I'm doing a, I've, I've been working with the historic house, and I've used this example as uh, this case study before, focusing on the house. But what I want to do today is really focus in on. The, um, the artifacts in the house. And the house itself is in Exeter, New Hampshire, oops, called the Fog Rollins House. And um, it was left in a will. There we go. Great. Can we get everything? Okay, great. So here's, here's the house. Um, the last owner, when she died in 1995, uh, formed a trust, and this is what her will said. This is what her will said, and I can let you read that. Uh, the property was in Exeter, New Hampshire. She lived in Salisbury, Massachusetts, and she left her house there to her 12 cats that had life tenancy. Some of you have heard this before. Uh, here's her house in Salisbury. And um, we did a documentary report which said in 2000 that this is not a good candidate for a house museum, and um, we need the process to decide the fate of the house and the collections, I have to say, was long and slow. So it was built originally as a farmhouse and later used as a summer camp. And it also contains a family graveyard and several outbuildings. And I'm just showing you the building. The barn. Look at the stuff. It was said that the barn was, the barn was only standing because its three floors were completely full of artifacts. And one of the unique items was this wheelwright shop and the almost a complete set of wheelwright tools from the mid-19th century were still on the second floor. Nothing of value on the first floor. House hadn't been used since the 1950s, so let's look at it. It was a jumble of material, some of it clearly from the original house, 
Okay. Some of it was brought in by Ms. Rollins, who was also a collector, and some of it was material from her Salisbury house that the cats didn't want. So, so you can see some of the original material, and it was, believe me, packed. There were just paths to walk in, including all the family photographs and papers she had taken out of the Salisbury house. So moving upstairs, just to give you an idea of what we were dealing with, every single closet was full, every drawer was full, uh, everything was full, including the attic. We did offer a course with the University of New Hampshire two years, in, two years to have them come in and study the artifacts as part of a course on uh, regional material culture. After more than 10 years, money running out, and the cat's still alive, the board was uncertain about the future, but we were really forced to come to a decision on the future of the house. So what we did do, and let me just show you where it is. If you look at where, you can see Boston about a third up and then just a third down Portsmouth. It's just a little bit below Portsmouth to give you an idea of the town. Was, uh, is, was a mill town and does include a historical society and it's probably best known because of Phillips Exeter Academy, a very prestigious uh, prep school there. So that's the kind of the situation that we found ourselves with this house and the collections. What do we do with the collections? Okay. We had determined, and this much I'm not giving you away, is that it was not going to be a house museum. So what happens to the collections? Okay. We were trying to do due diligence. So those are the three case studies, and now we're going to break you into groups and there are some questions posed on the papers that we're going to give you. And we're going to give you about uh, 15, 20 minutes or so to look at these and help us, especially Gwendolyn, come up with solutions. And then Jay and I are going to actually tell you what panned out in our two cases, one with the Historical Society and one with the Historic House. So um, I think since we're a large group, you can sit in place. And if we want to work in groups of nine or ten, so maybe you know two aisles at a time working together, and you can move around the seats. And if you want to get up and leave, that's fine too. <laughs> so we're going to pass these out. Yeah, get in your group, and we'll come around. So about two rows each. If it's a little bit more or less, that's fine. So while you're breaking up into groups, what we're going to do is ask you to read these over. We've got a sheet for each of you, and then we're going to ask one of you to sort of lead a discussion or have a discussion and then report back to us what you see as the solution.
So we should do yours first.
Hey, um, time is up. I wish we could give you more, but we are very anxious to hear what you all came with. We are recording this, so I'm going to ask whoever is speaking for your group, I'll hand them the microphone. So uh, just identify which group you are working on, and why don't we start over in this group. Uh, we looked at the South Dakota Historical Society. Am I getting that right? Yes, case study. And we, which is about the round bench. Uh, and I think we all came to a consensus that we would, uh, the Historical Society should deaccession the bench and give it to the Bureau of Administration to use with the other 1910 furniture. And some of the uh, reasons were that the extensive, the reupholstering and the changes that had been made to it, the fact that there wasn't a lot of conclusive evidence about how it was used, where it was used, when it was used, that the historical significance was uh, questionable, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't think they mentioned it, but can you tell the group what it was covered in? Nagahide. It's a, it's a rare South Dakota animal. <laughs> okay. How about this group over here? Who's your spokesperson? Okay. And tell which group. Okay. Uh, we were working on the Morris Butler House, um, full of artifacts that need to be taken care of before it can be used for something else. Um, and after discussing the fact that uh, due to Indiana law, you are really... There isn't much that can be done other than um, starting the due diligence on each piece. Um, but if they can be moved to the third floor as you're working, you move to another space to try to make the, the house viable um, in the meantime, so you can move forward with that. But um, you know, the pieces that, that need clear title are going to need clear title before anything else can be done. And then um, you know, move forward with the pieces that you, that you can move forward on. Did I miss anything, guys? Okay. Right. You know. So yes. So all of us registrars. This is why we try to keep really good records. <laughs> okay. Um, how about you all? We also had the South Dakota Round Bench. We we took a slightly different tack, though, with some of the same rationale that the bench had lost much of its integrity, had been restored, Naga hide on it. And we kept it in the museum collection, but restored it and put interpretive labels about the use and furnishings in the state house because it is the people's house. It's the people's bench and uh, decided to put it back. Hopefully train either administrative service people how to move the bench when it needed to be moved for the Christmas trees or take museum staff time to move the bench when it needed to be done, but recognizing that there were some preservation issues, but it had lost most of its integrity, but keeping it in the collection. Good. Oh, it's still going. Okay, well, that's good. I'm glad we're getting some, some different views. Okay, well, why don't we do uh, the other Indiana? right here, and I think that's Larry. I'm working with a really brilliant group of people here. So that's true, I was not sitting here. First of all, that we came to the end of the conclusion that there was a good point is that whatever we do, we gotta get to the newspaper before all the volunteers and everybody who loves all this furniture gets there before we do. So we can explain to the public why we're doing what we're doing. 
and make our case, uh, which I thought was a, a great point. We have to be very transparent. We have to be very, very clear and write it out what we're doing. So first of all, the family pieces, there was great concern about those pieces that uh, the mission might change 50 years from now and there's no way you're gonna go out and recollect those things if you've sold them or given them away. So we advise that the organization box those up in nice curatorial boxes and put them in the third floor someplace where they're gonna uh, be preserved time and the next generation may have a new idea on that. Then we're gonna let you sell everything that you got uh, and we agree that it's gonna have to sit someplace for th the three years to get the title clear on a lot of things but we begin that process. We thought we should divide the collection really up into two parts. Uh, one was we discussed if there's some really wonderful valuable pieces there that maybe we ought to think about maybe they need to either go to auction because we need the money for the house or maybe they need to go to the, another museum because they're important enough to uh, be preserved as historical artifacts. But we wanted to divide the usable collection into two parts. Uh, one is that it's out all the time. People can sit on it. People can do whatever they need to do uh, with it. But there are some pieces in the house that really might come out only on special occasions, so we drive the staff crazy and they'll have to hide them away. But if you're doing a wedding and you need a bride's picture and there's a wonderful chair there, we're gonna haul that beautiful chair out for that particular event. And crew, did I get all that? Yeah, see, they were brilliant. Oh, and we charge for it too. <laughs> Very good, thank you. All right, and let's go on to the first Fog Rollins house here. Okay, we talked about the Fog Rollins House, opening that as a historic house museum. I think we were all in agreement that uh, we shouldn't be doing this. There are quite a number of examples of vernacular architecture in the area. Uh, the area did not need to support yet another uh, example of it. So what do you do with the material that was included in the trust? With the trust saying, make the property available for viewing by all persons as a historic homestead or museum. Well, we took that to mean, and it also said, we're at all practical. So that's an out right there. But also, I think we have to look at the, the um, intent, the spirit uh, of the trust as well, um, to make the property available for viewing uh, by all persons. Um, we thought that perhaps the, the property could be repurposed, uh, not as a historic house museum, but some other kind of community function where it could be actively used. The contents, um, again, we thought that perhaps dividing it into a couple of different categories. Uh, with time of the essence, perhaps you have a number of experts in the area, a number of people who can come in, I think, and perform some triage uh, on the material without having to do an extensive inventory of everything there. I think you can get people to come in and identify, pick out those pieces that perhaps ought to be saved in a permanent collection. Set those aside, deal in, with the rest of the material, sell that, keep the proceeds to rehab the structure, uh, support that with grants, etc. cetera, uh, there, um, and perhaps donate those materials that are worthy of preservation to another historical uh, society or museum that could make better use of it, thereby fulfilling the wish to make it available for viewing for all persons. Thank you. Got one more? Right here. 
Who's going to speak? Uh, we also had fog around the house, and we were also I don't know if this is okay. So we uh, we also were very appreciative of her if it's practical line in her will. Um, we talked mostly about the collections, um, and we were in agreement that this wasn't really suitable to become a house museum, as they already said. Um, and so there was a number of really great ideas um, on what to do with the collections, and we agreed that they should, um, since they already had some people looking at it, that they should keep objects um, that can be kept and um, potentially their historic New England sites are preserved, and then to um, do whatever else we could with the collection to use it in the most practical way. So there's some really great ideas about um, partnering with the New Hampshire College, um, having their museum studies um, department use it, um, and learn all kinds of great lessons about what not to do and what to do. Um, some great ideas about sending it to conservation schools and letting them practice on some of the objects and um, of a school, a carpenter school in Boston as well, um, letting them get their hands on some of the objects and um, study them and examine them. And we also talked about the barn and the, um, um, the Wheelwright shop and had some ideas for that because it seems like it had um, more historical integrity and with it being the completely intact Wheelwright set um, that potentially um, leave that there or even pack it up and move it to another location where people can see that since it had um, more historical integrity. Anything else we talked about? And um, potentially give the entire, um, after dealing with the collections, potentially give the entire property to another organization like um, a historic um, landscape or a botanical garden, something like that. And may, they may even want to keep the barn and the Wheelwright shop and keep those open, nature preserve type places. So, so you mean giving, it, giving the problem to someone else? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Whoops, oh, sorry. Okay, well, thank you. Those were some great things, and I'm stuck here. Okay. So um, some really good thoughts, and I, I actually wish I had talked to some of the, got some of your ideas for the Fog Rollins house before I tell you what actually happened. Um, do you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. So uh, since we ended with the Fog Rollins, I'm going to go and tell you what actually happened. And, and I really do sincerely mean this. You had some great ideas. So what we had to do legally was to amend the will. So we had to, I told some of the groups that, we had a problem. Massachusetts is where the cats lived, and the house was in New Hampshire, but the attorney general in New Hampshire, uh, Massachusetts, said they could deal with the problem. So we amended the will, which had allowed us to sell the Salisbury house. We bought condos for the cats and move forward with the disposition of the collection. So what did we do? We wrote a policy, and we brought in guest curators to oversee that, and then, some of you got this, we, in keeping with the spirit of Miss Rollins' wishes and with the agreement with the Attorney General, because we had to listen to him, uh, we distributed the artifacts to appropriate institutions that would care and or use the artifacts, making them accessible to researchers and the public. So you got that right on. So these are actually shots where we invited curators from the New Hampshire Historical Society, from uh, Strawberry Bank, from Historic New England, from the local historical society in town. 
which their uh, board president sat on the board of the Fog Rollins in to make a list of anything they wanted for the collection. I wish I thought about sending things off to North Street Bennett School to study in Boston. I hadn't thought about that one or co other conservators. Um, and they, the guest curators oversaw this. And if there was any artifact that more than one institution wanted, they decided where it would be the best fit. And that only happened to two or three objects. So after that was all decided, they came in and took the stuff. This is staff from the New Hampshire Historical Society that wanted Ms. Rollins' uh, painted bedroom set. And we have the oral history where she talks about this. So they got a copy of that. This Indian walking stick from the White Mountains they took. The New Hampshire Farm Museum took artifacts that were actually were allowing them to be used. You know, they were going to benefit the public in another way. After all of this, only 1% to 2% went to museums. They didn't want the common stuff that they already had and did not need. So what did we do? We brought a company in, and we had an estate sale on the grounds. And um, with the sale of, the, of Salisbury House and the Fog Rollins House, we had about $40,000. No, excuse me. We sold Salisbury House, the money from here, and we put the house into our stewardship program with Historic New England. And that preserved, it said, which wallpapers had to be saved, which doorknobs had to be saved, which mantles. Very, very specific document. And we gave them $40,000 for the care of that. The rest of the money, we said, we being museum professional knows, it takes money to care for collections. It takes a lot of money. You all know this. And we then dispersed all the remaining money. It was several thousand dollars at that point from the sale of both houses, both the Salisbury and the, the Exeter house, um, and distributed that to all the museums that took artifacts. So I think one museum got $70,000, another got $50,000 for the care of the objects. And I'm happy to say some of the artifacts are being used. This is the Royal House and Slave Quarters. They, were, they didn't have material. They needed it. It's now on view and use. The house got sold, and guess what? They restored it with our easement program. You can see it coming together. That was then. This is now. And we even put a marker to tell the history of the house, again, trying to honor Ms. Rollins' wishes. So that's what happened with, uh, with Fog Rollins. And I could go into more detail, but there's not time. Yeah, question. As far as I know, the kitty cats are still happy. Uh, we had to pay $25,000. I call it a cat condo, but it was a humanitarian, you, you, an animal organization that would take care of them for the rest of their lives. One of them has been adopted. So that's good. So there we go. Happy ending for the cats. Oh, they're living in it, this house right here. They're living in it. So we sold it with easements, and they are actually fixed the house up and are living in it. That one had no restrictions on it, so we just sold it, and I think a developer is actually developing the land. As far as, yeah, I don't know if that's actually happened yet, but I think that's the plan. 
Okay, the, the barn was fixed up, all the artifacts were dispersed, so all that wheelwright material went to another museum, went to a farm museum that's not using it. There were two farm museums involved. So it's preserved. Okay. No, no, you can see it in the picture. It's all restored. They did a great job. Yep. 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 One last. They were, they were, her name was associated with them and we gave them copies of all the oral histories and any photographs that we had so that it's well documented that it was Ms. Rollins and where it came out of. But some of it we didn't know if it was Ms. Rollins. The bedroom set we did. Okay, I'm going to let, we'll come back to questions and let Jay go on and talk about what happened with the round bench. Um, the Capitol Complex and Restoration Commission voted not to request the round bench be returned to the state capitol. The commission acknowledged that the bench was an artifact of the State Historical Society collection and they could only ask to borrow the object. And that's their way of avoiding making a decision because they could always say the State Historical Society made the decision. Despite sympathy for the historical significance of the bench having been um, associated with the, the state capitol, the real reason for not wanting the bench back in the capitol was the hassle of moving it around in the building for special events and moving it back and forth between our building and the state capitol building. So we were glad to jump on that bandwagon to argue that yes, the bench should not be moved around so much and it currently resides nicely in collections storage. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Thank you. I believe she's let the matter rest. And, and we have a new governor now, so it's a whole different dynamic again, so. Okay, so Morris Butler House is not done. We don't, we don't have an, an end result. I can tell you where we're at right now um, is ciphering through, continuing to cipher through the collections records and the um, donor records which are inconsistent and an example would, it took an hour to find out whether a collection of books was still in the house, an hour, with a donor name attached as well as um, Indiana provenance, it took an hour to go through, for two staff to go through. So we have a lot of stuff to reconcile. Um, I'm, does anybody have any questions about, about Morris Butler House. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, a couple couple things in closing, and then we can take another couple of questions because we get about five minutes. But one of the things that I really um, want to let me just go here kind of end up and, and tell you. The reason that we put this together is because there is a lot of discussion in the field about using the collections. You've seen all these, but I want to go to this side. And I have a handout. I don't know, Rainy, if you have any more. Um, but the discussion about using collections and about deaccessioning collections, collections, we all, 
I love stuff. Anyone who's been to my house knows I love stuff. Um, and uh, we think that they tell powerful stories. But the thing is that a lot of us are dying under their weight and the cost for the care of those collections. So we're looking, we need to, I think, be much more nimble in this field in how we view collections, care for them, and use collections. Now, Trevor Jones and Rainey Tisdale, Rainey, raise your hand, um, have written a manifesto for active museum collections. And, you know, just to quote from the opening, they've been thinking about collections and museums in a long time. And their feeling, and a lot of other people, is that museums generally do not use objects well and we're drowning in the artifacts that we don't need, okay? So they wrote a manifesto, and um, we're, they are looking for views um, on making museum collections more um, active, and this is a call for change. Now, I have, this has gone live. Randy, why don't you tell everyone? If you, do you mind if I put you on the spot? Come up here. Oh, yeah, and while we're waiting for that, please do fill out your evaluations yeah, I'm Rainy. Um, so we have these little postcards with our website. This is a very bare bones project that Trevor and I just started because this is something we really care about. And it's not so much that we want to get rid of all the stuff. We just want to make sure that we are, um, you know, sort of focusing on the really powerful stuff that has great stories and maybe paring down our collections, not, you know, leaps and bounds so that we have 25% of the stuff we have now, but just sort of um, unburdening ourselves from the things that have no provenance, no stories, no meaning, or a dime a dozen, so that we can really focus these limited resources on the powerful stuff the stuff that does have great stories, the stuff that really means something to our public audience. And so this idea of focusing on the active objects, the objects that are really bringing value, and kind of uh, unburdening ourselves from the lazy objects that are just going to sit there on some shelf for the next 200 years and not be needed by our institutions. So. Um, so check out our stuff, and we're just starting out. We've got the manifesto, and we've got some wish lists and some ideas about where we'd like it to go, but we need to get some case studies going and do some experiments for what we might, how we might do it differently. So anybody who wants to get on board with that and help us and lend some of your own um, people power to making a change in the field that might help us all do more effective work. Thanks. And I've got more of these postcards if anybody needs them. Oh, and yeah, I'll just tell you the website, and then if you want one of the postcards, you can take it. It's activecollections.org. Activecollections.org. Thanks, Randy. Didn't know you were going to be here, so this is great. So um, actually, yes, uh, we've got some. I'll pass these around. Randy, you can pass out others. I think people will want them. Okay? Oh, I'll get you one. So um, we have a few more minutes for questions, if anyone has any. But again, let's keep the discussion going. Yeah.
collections policies that um, acknowledge a date range as kind of a period of collections, but that also allow you to collect items to use even if they fall within that date range. Does that make sense? And, and kind of how do you distinguish between what's appropriate for the use collection versus the permanent, you know, velvet rope collection? Does anyone have examples? Okay, well, let's pass that around so we can get that. We've got two. Hi, Go um, the museum I'm at has three generations of a family's things. The last generation um, being outside the scope of the house museum. The, the owners died in 1936, so their son's stuff from on into the 50s and 60s. And so we have um, in our collections management policy that we're um, rewriting right now, actually, um, we have a supplemental collection. Um, which is stuff that is technically owned by the family um, and occasionally could have been inherited from the people who lived in our house and whose lives we interpret. Um, but that's what we call the supplemental collection and it has kind of a, a good description that like can be used by the public or the, the people. And we also have kind of exhibit furniture that's um, really good stuff that we want to keep track of, you know, really m like pedestals and things we put good money into. Right. Did, we is also on that. did you want to add something? Go ahead. Okay. One, pass that over. I work in an aviation museum, and so I'm actually retooling the collections management policy right now, and we are going to have a, um, a prop and restoration collection, items that are going to come in, and, um, you know, if they, have, if they have the type of condition that, you know, they can actually withstand being put into an airplane, um, they, depending on what type of airplanes we have and whether that could actually be used, it'll go straight into a prop and restoration. Um, otherwise, we have... There are, are going to be, you know, some kind of gray areas where we do have things that can be deaccessioned from the permanent collection into the prop and restoration collection. And I think a lot of us have study collections too, so we could use. So I think maybe you could all talk after this. Any last question? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go ahead. The Henry Ford Museum back in the '90s actually started a tiering policy that you can access by Googling. Uh, and I'll pull it up, actually. So I know what, I'm going to email it to you, too, Ken, that uh, relates to looking at historical significance, much like and Matt's what? here, but I worked there, too. Matt works there now. Uh, and, and we looked at historical significance, but Henry Ford will operate, you know, one of the most significant automobiles in, in American history, and they use it. And so taking the attitude that if you know what you're doing, it is acceptable to use one-of-a-kind objects, you just need to be really careful and be mindful of what you're doing. And uh, the preservation policy from Henry Ford Museum can be found. Uh, go to cool.conservation-us.org and, and uh, you'll get Henry Ford Museum's preservation policy on that site. And uh, it'll give you a lot of good feedback from and collaborating with conservators and program people and curators. So. That was how that policy was developed. Great, good point. Okay, Cindy? Oh, wait, get to that, yeah. I, I went to something, um, a symposium at the Nichols House in Boston a while ago, and I don't know, Ken, if you went, and one of the examples they had was there's something in Holland called the Church in the Attic. Um, it's, a, it's a church that's built in a house. Um, and they had a Bible they were using, and they had this big discussion about whether they should let people touch the Bible or not, and they got money from Getty to 
talk about to study, and I'm not getting this exactly right, how long the Bible would survive if they let people <laughs> touch it. And, and they finally came to the conclusion that because it wasn't the only Bible like that in the world, um, that there were other ones that were available, and based on this study, that they were going to let it be used until it was gone. gone. Um, and I, I just thought that was really, really interesting. Well, there's a lot going on with this. Our time has ended. Please go to Rainey and Trevor's website and keep the discussion going. And thank you all for coming.